following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're starting a brand new series today called Origins. And uh, what I've discovered is if you say that word a lot of times, you start saying oranges. So I've got to try really hard uh, through the series not to say oranges, okay? Uh, and um, if you're wondering why we're doing a series on oranges, it's, no, it's origins, origins, and we are going back. We're going back to the beginning. We're going back to where it all began, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Uh, just the first three chapters. We're not going to do the whole book of Genesis, just the first three chapters. And uh, those, those first three chapters in particular are so foundational for the rest of the whole biblical story that follows on from there. All the rest of the Old Testament, all the rest of the New Testament, including the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, all of that rests on Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. All of it comes back to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Even you get right through to the end of the Bible story in Revelation. You get to the new heavens and the new earth. And it still all rests back on Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. The end of the story sounds a lot like the beginning of the story. If you've ever read the last couple of chapters of the Bible and then the first couple of chapters of the Bible, they sound very, very similar. Uh, it's like the whole story kind of comes full circle, except the new is even better than the old. And so these chapters are so formative, they're so foundational for the rest of the biblical story. They are foundational for our lives in the present because Everything that we experience in life, all of the good and all of the bad, all of the blessings, all of the curses, all of the joy, all of the pain, all of that is ultimately traced back to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. All of that finds its origin in the origin of creation, the origin of humanity, and the origin of sin, the entrance of sin into the world and the curse and the fall. Everything, all the good and the bad that we experience in life. So these chapters, these stories at the beginning of Genesis are foundational for the biblical narrative. They are foundational. They are the foundational building blocks for a Christian worldview. And so we are going to track through Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 over the next couple of months and uh, try to listen afresh to what the Spirit is saying to the church through God's Word. Sound good? You're excited. Yes, it's going to be fun. So what we'll do, so this morning, I'm only going to do one verse, all right? I know we always do this at the beginning of a series, don't we? We only do one verse. Uh, and, and yes, we will pick up the pace next week and we'll get motoring, but we're just going to do this morning Genesis 1 verse 1. 1-1, one, one, okay? So crack open your Bible. It's, it's hard to even hold your Bible open at Genesis 1-1 because it's just right at the beginning there, right inside the cover, but uh, should at least be easy to find. Get set. I'm going to read it in a minute, but before I do that, I want to play a video to you. And this is a video, just to kind of set this whole thing up, this is a video of uh, Richard Dawkins, who's, uh, many of you will know the name, a renowned atheist, uh, probably the most renowned atheist in the world today. And he's giving his view, this is his opinion, on the origin of the heavens and the earth. So, let's watch the screen. So you have no idea how it started? No, 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 no nor has anybody. Nor has anyone else. What do you think is the possibility that, there, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in, well, in evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization e evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology. 
and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the, um, at the detail, details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. Well, but that uh, higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. So Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design, just certain types of designers, such as God. So the, the Hebrew God, the God of the Old Testament, he doesn't exist in your view? Um, certainly, I mean, that would be a very unpleasant pro prospect. And you know, uh, the trend, Holy Trinity of the no, New Testament, nothing, that Nothing exist. like that. Do you believe in any of the uh, Hindu gods? Like Vishnu? How can you ask such a question? You I mean, don't, how, right? how could I? I mean, why, why in, would I, given that I don't believe in any others? You don't believe in the Muslim God? No. And why do you even need to ask? Well, I just wanted to be sure. So you don't believe in any God anywhere? Any God anywhere would be completely incompatible with, 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 with anything that I've said. In, in, I, I assume. Yeah. I, I just wanted to make sure. You don't okay. believe in any God anywhere? No. What if, you, if after you died, you ran into God? He said, what have you been doing, Richard? I mean, what have you been doing? I've been trying well, to be nice to you. Yeah. I gave you a multi-million dollar paycheck yeah. over and over again with your book, and look what you did. Bertrand Russell was, had that point put to him, and he said um, something like, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? Interesting, eh? Some food for thought there. You've got there really one of the most renowned atheists in the world, one of the, certainly one of the most dominant voices in science today, a guy that argues against religion, argues against any god anywhere, uh, argues against any explanation for the origins of the universe that would be supernatural. Uh, and yet when it comes to trying to answer the question of where did it all begin, what was the first cause of life, the best explanation he's got is that aliens seeded life on this planet that aliens came and planted life on planet Earth, which just shifts the question back one degree, doesn't it? Who created the aliens? Where did they come from? And then where did they come from? And where did they come from? And back and back you go. Um, atheists have a very hard time answering the question, what was the very first cause? Because you can't get something out of nothing. What was the very first cause of life, of the universe? Where did it all ultimately? They've got all sorts of explanations once life gets going, once matter is created. But where did it all begin uh, at, the, at the very start. The atheist, the skeptic, will struggle to answer that question. So with that in the back of our heads, let's look then at the biblical explanation for how the heavens and the earth came to be. In Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a simple statement. It's a clear statement. It's a bold statement. It's an emphatic statement. And uh, this is the fundamental Christian view of where our universe began, that God is the creator of all things. Now, there's a lot in this verse to unpack. And the first thing to understand about Genesis 1, verse 1, 
first verse in this chapter, is that the first verse in Genesis functions as a summary statement of the whole story. Okay, this is quite important. So when we read Genesis 1.1, we're not, this is not the first act of creation. This is a heading over the whole story. Okay, this is like a title. This is a heading. It would be helpful in your Bible if verse 1 and verse 2 were separated by a paragraph because verse 1 gives you the heading and then the rest of Genesis 1 is going to tell the story of God creating the heavens and the earth. Now, you can tell that's the case because when you get all the way down to chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So there you've got a concluding statement saying that now the story is wrapped up. The creation story is now complete. So you have this introductory statement in 1.1, and you have this concluding statement in 2.1, and in between those two is the narrative of God creating the heavens and the earth. So those two statements are like bookends of the creation story. So when we come to interpret Genesis 1.1, we, we, we don't want to see it as the first step in the process. This is an overarching heading. It's a summary statement of the entire journey that is about to unfold. That's how we should read it. Now, Given that that's the case, given that Genesis 1.1 introduces the story of creation that is to follow, I want to just step back from this for a minute. I want to step back from Genesis 1 as a whole chapter and ask this question. How should we read Genesis 1? Genesis chapter 1 in particular. How should we read Genesis chapter 1? It might seem like a silly question because you might say, well, just read it. It's just, it's just words on the page. It's just ink on the page. Just read it like you'd read anything else, right? But the, the question is a little bit more complicated than that. How should we read this text? Uh, let me illustrate it to you that way, this way. Uh, in our family, we have a game called Googly Eyes, and it involves this pair of glasses here, which I brought along this morning. Now, what you have to do is basically like Pictionary, this game, except... When you're drawing, you've got to wear the glasses. So you put the glasses on, and then you get this bit of paper that you can barely even see because the lenses are so distorted and warped and weird. And then you have a word, and you've got to try and draw the word. And everyone else has got to try and guess the word. And uh, you know, on it goes. But you've got to be wearing the glasses the whole time. You can, you can barely even see what you're doing, so you end up with these squiggles on the page, these random lines. You think you're drawing something, uh, and then you take the glasses off, and it just looks completely crazy. It's a fun game. Lots of fun. Now, I use this as a little bit of an illustration, okay? because I think what happens is when a lot of Christians come to read Genesis 1, they put on a pair of glasses. They don't realize they're doing this. They'd never admit that they were doing this. It's, it's an implicit thing. It's an assumption. But implicitly, they put on these lenses. They put on these, these glasses that influence the way they read the text. And the glasses that they put on when they read Genesis 1 are the glasses of modern science. And they assume that what Genesis 1 is doing is giving us a modern scientific account of exactly how the heavens and the earth were created. Now, there's nothing wrong, of course, with modern science. Nothing wrong with, with modern scientific discovery. Uh, we know far more about biology and astrology and physics and zoology and so on than, than, than human history we ever have in the past. Modern science is a great gift. It's just that when you look at Genesis 1 through the lens of modern science and we bring all of our modern scientific 
understanding and our modern scientific assumptions and our modern scientific methods and our modern scientific language and questions, and we bring all of that to this text, it is going to influence the way you read it. It's going to influence the meaning you get out of it. It's going to skew the way you read Genesis 1. Let me give you a couple of examples of this, if you're not convinced. If, if you put on the lenses of modern science and you read this as a scientific account of creation, you're going to expect that Genesis 1 gives us a very logical, orderly, sequential, chronological account of creation, that it will be a step-by-step kind of mechanical view of how creation uh, occurred, because that's how we do science. That's how we do modern science. But if you come at it with that view, you're going to get stuck. There's going to be problems because Genesis 1 doesn't fit a perfectly sequential, strictly chronological kind of approach. Uh, For example, God creates light on day one, but he doesn't create the sun until day four. What do you do with that? Or God creates vegetation on day three, and yet in chapter two, we learn that there's no vegetation until human beings come along, which is on day six. So what do you do with that? Now, people have different theories on this, and they try and work it out and do some acrobatics and get around it, but it raises the question, are we reading the text the right way? Are we really reading the text as it was meant to be read, or maybe we're kind of reading it through these spectacles that are not helping? If you read the text through the lens of modern science, you are going to expect the language to be very concrete, very practical, very informational, because that's how we do science. You're not going to expect, for example, to see any poetry in Genesis 1. You're not going to expect, for example, to see any metaphor in Genesis 1. And yet, parts of Genesis 1 are poetic. There are these cadences, repeated phrases It's a highly stylized account of creation. What do we do with that? You'll miss that if you put on those glasses and you only read it through the lens of modern science. If you read this through the lens of modern science, you're going to expect that all of these natural phenomena that are described, all these animals and all these natural things, they're all going to correspond exactly to how we understand these phenomena to work today because we have much more advanced knowledge of these things. But again, if you do that, you're going to get stuck. Because you get to day four and the moon is described as a light. But we now know the moon's not a light, it reflects light. So what do we do with that? And God didn't feel the need to correct that. So what do we do? You see, it raises the question, are we reading the text the right way? Maybe this text is doing something that we didn't realize it was doing. When we come at this with our modern scientific bias, we are going to be driven by particular questions. In particular, we're going to ask the questions, when and how? Because those are modern science questions. Those are the questions that modern cosmologists ask about the origins of the universe. How did it happen? When did it happen? So we take those questions and we bring those questions to Genesis 1 and we think that's what the text is addressing, when and how. And so we get all hung up on exactly how it all happened. And we get really hung up on when. And is this, are we talking about an old earth or a young earth? And is the earth thousands of years old or is it billions, millions of years old? But all the while, we're bringing our modern questions to this text. And we're looking at the whole thing through the lens of modern science. And it skews the way we read it. So what I want to encourage us to do in this series is try, we can only try, but try to take off the googly eyes. Right? Try to take off the googly glasses 
of modern science. Again, nothing wrong with modern science. It's a God-given pursuit. Nothing wrong with that, but we've got to try to take off these modern scientific lenses and stop assuming the reason Genesis 1 was written is to give us a scientific account of how the heavens and the earth were created and when the heavens and the earth were created. We've got to try and put these aside, and we've got to try to come back and see Genesis 1 for what it is. So what is it? Well, first of all, it's a very ancient document. We know that for sure. Most people think it was written by Moses, at least recorded by Moses. God obviously revealed this. No one was actually there at the beginning. Uh, but written by Moses, maybe. Another view is maybe it was uh, recorded, written down during Israel's exile. Either way, it's thousands of years old. We know this. Now, Genesis 1 takes the form of what is called an ancient cosmology. Cosmology is just the study of the universe. There's, there's cosmology today. It's a field within science. Genesis takes the form of an ancient cosmology, an ancient description of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And the interesting thing is this. Genesis 1 is not the only ancient cosmology out there. There are many other cultures, ancient cultures, that had their own cosmologies, their own creation stories, their own narratives about how and when and why and where all of these things came together. The Egyptians had their creation story. The Babylonians had their creation story. The Mesopotamians had their creation story. The Sumerians had their creation story. And these stories were written down and they've been dug up. And you can Google them and read them. It's, it's an interesting thing to do. You can read the Babylonian account of creation. You can read the Egyptian account of creation. They're all right there. And when you line Genesis 1 up next to these other ancient cosmologies, you see both similarities and differences. And that helps us understand the purpose of Genesis 1. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying for a minute that Genesis 1 is just another myth floating around the ancient world, just another ancient cosmology like all these others. Obviously, as Christians, we know there is a world of difference between Genesis 1 and other creation stories that were out there. We know this is the true one. We know this is the true account of the one true God creating the heavens and the earth. So I'm not saying this is some kind of made-up story or this is just on par with every other creation myth that's out there. But what we've got to appreciate is that when we read Genesis 1, the truth that God has revealed has come to us in a specific cultural form, and it's called an ancient cosmology. And, and that means it has certain conventions, and that helps us to interpret Genesis 1. And we've got to respect that. It's, just, it's no different to when you're reading the New Testament and you come to the letters of Paul and you recognize these are epistles. It's a particular genre and it has particular conventions of ancient letter writing, and you interpret it accordingly. You respect the genre, right? It's just the same as when you're reading the parables of Jesus. You recognize I'm reading a parable, and you don't interpret it as if you're just reading straight history. You recognize it's a parable, and you interpret it accordingly, and you interpret a letter differently to a parable, and a parable differently to a letter. It's just the same as when we come to Genesis 1. This text is the revealed, inspired, true Word of God but it comes to us in a particular form, as all of Scripture does. It comes to us in a form that reflects its culture and reflects its time and reflects its origins. And that form is an ancient cosmology. 
And when we understand how ancient cosmologies function, we are going to be so much better prepared to understand what Genesis 1 is saying and the point that it's really getting at. Because here's the big thing to remember. Ancient cosmologies were driven by completely different questions to modern science. When we come at the text through the lens of modern science, we're asking the questions, how and when? And those are the big questions we get hung up on. Ancient cosmologies were not at all concerned with those questions. They were concerned with two other questions, who and why? Those are the big questions that ancient cosmologies asked. Those are the big questions that ancient cosmologies answered. Those are the big questions that Genesis 1 is answering. Who and why? You see, why is not even a question that modern science deals with at all, when you think about it. Our modern pursuits of science, they deal with what's empirical, what's observable, what's repeatable. That's, that's good, that's fine. Science never asks why. But ancient cosmologies do. They ask why. Why were these things created? What is their purpose? What is their function? What is their role? So when we come to Genesis 1, we need to understand the two primary questions that are being addressed in Genesis 1 are who created the heavens and the earth? And we've already answered that one, God, right? But constantly Genesis 1 is pointing us back to who? Who is this God? Who created? Who is he? What does Genesis 1 tell us about the God who created? That's a driving question. And then really importantly, why? We don't often have that question in our mind because we're so concerned with the details of trying to map out a mechanical process. But the, but the question driving Genesis 1 is, why did God do this on each day? Why did he create these things? Why, why, why? When, when God steps back from each day of creation and he says, it is good, we should immediately ask, good for what? Good for what? What's the purpose? It's not good for nothing. It's good for something. So what's it good for? What is the purpose? Ancient cosmologies were functionally orientated. They were always asking, why were these things brought into being? Genesis 1 is the story of God assigning roles and function and value and purpose and identity to these various things that he has created and bringing them all together in this orderly way to set up the world in the way that he wants it set up. So those are the questions that we should be keeping in mind when we read Genesis 1. Not the when and the how questions. And we'll touch on those as we go along. But what I want to ask us to do is be led by the questions Genesis 1 is really answering. The question who and the question why. So can we have those forefront in our mind as we go through? And as you're reading Genesis 1, have those questions. And you will find it opens up some Really, not, not novel, but fresh and insightful ways of seeing this text. And it will take you much further in understanding the purpose for which this is written. All right? Now, all that's just the introduction to the sermon. Okay? It's going to be a long day today. No, not really. That's why I only wanted to take one verse, because I wanted to create this, give you this framework for approaching Genesis 1, to understand its nature as an ancient cosmology driven by the question of why and why. Who? And we're going to try and keep those questions at the forefront as we go. All right. Now, all I, all I want to do today is just uh, briefly walk through this verse and just get our bearings with a few key words. So the first word in Hebrew, in Genesis 1.1, where the English translations say, in the beginning, is one word in Hebrew. It's the word bedashit. Everyone say bedashit. Yeah, you've got to be careful with that one, don't you? Yeah. 
You be careful or else you get in trouble in church. So Bereshit, and it means just exactly what it says in the beginning. All right, nothing difficult there. But I think it does raise the question, the beginning of what exactly? What is this the beginning of? Because when you think about it, it's not the beginning of everything, is it? it for example, it's not the beginning of God. God existed before Genesis 1. Didn't it? It, it, even the word before is difficult to use because there was no before, because there was no time. So I don't know what the right word to use is. But God existed before, beyond, above, outside of Genesis chapter 1. God already existed, Father, Son, and Spirit, in this eternal community of love and joy. So God already existed. And we also cannot say that this is the beginning of any created thing because as far as Scripture indicates, God had already created the angelic beings. So they existed. So it was, it was not the beginning of creation entirely. But what we can say is this is the beginning of our universe. This is the beginning of our cosmos. This is the beginning of the world that we inhabit. It'll be the beginning of the bodies we inhabit. This is the beginning of our story. The story the Bible tells. That's the beginning that Genesis 1.1 is pointing towards. So in the beginning, Bereshit. And then we have the word God. It's not actually the next word in Hebrew. Uh, God and created around the other way. But because God's next in English, we'll look at it next. The word God is the Hebrew word Elohim. Everyone say Elohim. Elohim. It's a, it's a very general word for God. It's not the personal name Yahweh which is the most common word for God in the Old Testament, uh, because Yahweh was given when there was a relationship. God gave Yahweh to Moses and to Israel when he entered into a covenant or was close to entering into a covenant with them. And so it, 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 it's this idea there's a relationship established. In the beginning, there's no relationship yet. There's no human beings to have relationship with. And so there's a more general term, Elohim, that's used, which just simply means God or Lord Almighty or Lord Most High. Interestingly, it's a version of that word that Jesus used on the cross when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, uh, that Eli, that's an abbreviated form of Elohim. And it's interesting that on the cross, Jesus doesn't say Yahweh. He says Elohim because the relationship is broken with the Father because Jesus has taken the covenant curse on himself. So he goes back to Elohim. Back to the beginning, in a sense. Back to this more general. There's a world of exploration in that. You might want to look at that in your life groups. Elohim. But it's this general word. It still means the God of the Bible. Okay? It's not, this is not just some general term for a deity or a God. It doesn't mean anyone. This is still the God of Jesus. It's the Trinity, but it's a more general term for God. So in the beginning, God created. The word created is the word bara. Everyone say bara. Bara. We're learning some Hebrew this morning, right? Bara. And uh, it seems on the, on the surface of it like that's pretty straightforward. It just means to create. But interestingly, it's useful to do a little word study on the word create, the word bara. And you find in the Old Testament, it's only used of God. I mean, hu human beings make stuff, but that particular word is only used of God. Only God creates in that special sense. Only God does this kind of creating work. And the word basically means to bring forth, to bring about, to bring about something that didn't previously exist. It doesn't always mean to create from nothing, by the way. That might raise a few eyebrows, but it doesn't always mean to create from nothing. For example, it's used of Israel. God created Israel. Uh, well, there were already people around, obviously. 
uh, but he brought forth this nation. He brought forth something that wasn't previously existing. So you could translate Genesis 1.1 as, in the beginning, God brought forth creation, the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God brought about the heavens and the earth. It really emphasizes that idea of role and function and purpose. Not just simply that God made something out of nothing. I believe he did. But the point of the word is what for? Why did God create? What is the role? What is the purpose? What is the function? That's the direction that Bara points which is in line with exactly what ancient cosmologies were interested in. Why were things created? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a long Hebrew phrase I won't try and repeat, but it simply means the entirety of our world, the entirety of our cosmos. And by the way, don't get tripped up on that word heaven or the word heavens. Uh, The word heaven or heavens is used in a few different ways in the Bible. Uh, And this way is just simply talking about the physical atmosphere outer space, the world beyond the earth. Okay, it's, it's that when you look up at night, you're looking up into the heavens. It's a different thing from the heaven where God resides and the heaven where believers go when they die. That's a different concept, okay? God didn't create that. That already existed because God existed. This is God creating the very physical atmosphere, heavens, the cosmos, okay? So the earth and then everything beyond the earth is the heavens. That's what's being talked about here. So that's a little walk through Genesis 1.1, and I simply want to finish today by asking the question, what do we learn from this first verse in the Bible? What do we learn from this? How is this relevant to our lives? Two two simple things. Firstly, Genesis 1.1 tells us that the universe is not random. Okay, As as we go through Genesis 1.1, there are all kinds of views I know that people have on exactly how God did things and the the order that things took place, and the time it took, and there's all sorts of room for disagreeing on those things. But I think the one view that is really ruled out right at the beginning is that the universe is simply random, and that the material universe is all that exists. Because right at the very beginning, we have this affirmation, the universe was brought into being by God. This is the fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. It's the first doctrine revealed in the Bible, that God is creator. He is creator God. If you don't believe that, you can't really be a Christian in that sense. The God is creator. He has spoken into being all that exists. It's the first line of the creed, first line of the Apostles' Creed that we looked at a few years ago. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. There it is. Everything else follows on from that. God is creator. And that's a tough doctrine to hold today, isn't it? In an increasingly secular world where people like Dawkins try and make us feel stupid for believing that that you would believe that there's a, there's a God, a supernatural God who, who, who breathed life into being. But this is the affirmation that the Bible starts with, that all of life traces its origins back to God as creator. He is the one who has spoken this universe into being. Behind all things stands a loving and a wise and a powerful and an infinitely creative God, a personal being, God. God's created the heavens and the earth. It's a simple truth but we need to establish it right up front. It's fundamental. The universe is not random. It is the loving design of of an all-wise, all-powerful, sovereign creator. And then the second truth that follows on from this is the universe is not divine. Okay, so this would be to make the opposite error. On the one hand, to say the universe is random would be to exclude God from creation, But if you go all the way over the other side and you say the universe is divine, then you are confusing God with creation. 
And you are saying that God has become so intermingled with creation. His essence has become so infused into creation that he doesn't exist apart from creation. That God and creation are one. And they're so integrated that the fullness of God is absorbed into creation. And you might think that's, that's crazy. How, why would anyone think that? Who would think that? You'd be surprised. Who would think that? A lot of people think that. So many people, it's got a name. It's called pantheism. And pantheism has a long, long history, but it is basically this view that reality and divinity are exactly the same thing. So that God, whoever God or the gods might be, they just get swallowed up into creation. It crops up in various religions, uh, parts of Hinduism, uh, pantheistic, uh, parts of New Age spirituality, a pantheistic, where you, where you look at each other and you say, I see God in you. You are the essence of God. You are the essence of the divine. You have the divine within you. Now, in a sense, I know when you say that, it kind of almost sounds Christian. It kind of almost sounds Christian to say, I see God in you. But this is a different thing from saying, I see God at work in your life or I see the Holy Spirit in you, or you're made in the image of God. Those are all good Christian affirmations. But this is saying you are really identical to God. You are God. You are the essence of God, and there is no other personal God outside of you and me and the rest of creation. This is the entirety of what exists, and God's essence is so infused, there is no personal being called God. We're all just interconnected as God together. Now, that's heresy. That's quite a different thing from saying, I see the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Pantheism says, well, there's no personal being called God at all. But Genesis 1.1 establishes this fundamental distinction between the creator and creation. There is a creator-creation distinction that is so important. He's the creator, we're the creatures. Okay, this is real, because if you get those categories confused, you're in trouble. There is always a distinction. He is God and we are not. Right through the Bible, that creator-creature distinction is maintained. Yes, God fills the world with his presence. Yes, God fills our lives and our hearts with his Holy Spirit. But God still exists as a personal being distinct from his creation. He has brought creation into being. He is not the same thing as creation. That would be pantheism, okay? God and creation are not one. God can be present in creation without being swallowed up by it. And that was just as important, by the way, in the ancient world, when you get a picture of the, the world this text comes out of, because you have these other ancient cultures that were quite pantheistic. Think about the Egyptians. The Egyptians had all these gods, all these natural phenomena, the moon, the stars, the sun, and many animals, they considered to be gods. They considered to be divine. So they'd have the sun god, they'd have the serpent god, bulls and goats and cows and so on. All of these things were considered to be gods. And Genesis 1 comes along, and you start to get a bit of a perspective as to why this text was written. Genesis 1 comes along and says, look at all this stuff. These are not gods. These are not divine things. These are not things to be worshipped. These things themselves were created by the one true God. So don't worship this stuff. Don't worship these animals. Don't worship these stars. Worship the one who made the stars. Worship the one who made animal life, plant life, who made the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 calls us out of this pantheistic way of seeing the world towards true theology, where God is the creator of all that exists. 
So the universe is not random and the universe is not divine. We've got to be careful of both of those errors as we go through. Genesis 1.1 tells us God is creator. He is created, but he is distinct from his creation. So I know some of this might be different to the way maybe that you've thought about Genesis before, some of this might rattle the cage a bit in terms of how you've thought of the creation story, and maybe you get a little bit suspicious. And, and by the way, let me just say, this doesn't mean, none of what I've said this morning means that we should not take Genesis 1 literally. I know some of you are looking at me sideways, like, are you one of those guys who thinks we shouldn't read Genesis 1 literally? No, I absolutely think we should read Genesis 1 literally. I just think we need to be careful about what we mean by the word literal. Because literal doesn't mean what I literally think it means based on my categories of modern science. To read the Bible literally means we try to understand what it literally meant in its original context. That's just good Bible study, right? What it meant to its, by its original author to its original audience, literally. That's the only way you can get at a truly literal understanding of any biblical text. So yes, I believe we should take the Bible, including Genesis 1, literally, as long as we define what we mean by literally. It's original, literal intent. So this may be a little bit different. This might, you might you know, push back a little on some of this or not be sure. And my prayer and my hope would simply be that some of what I've said today would drive you back to read the Bible itself. Don't take it from me. You go back and read this for yourself. You go back and read the creation story. And all I would encourage you to do is try to read it with fresh eyes, fresh ears, open hearts. And try to take off the glasses of modern scientific assumptions and try to hear this text as the Word of God, but the Word of God revealed through the ancient world to His ancient people Israel. And that doesn't mean that it's not relevant to us today. It is. This is timeless truth. But we start by placing the text back in its world and allowing it to speak to us from there. And I hope that you'll find when you do that, that that doesn't diminish your view of creation at all. It doesn't diminish your view of God at all, but it enlarges it. I think it'll give you a bigger view of who God is as the almighty, incredible master builder, master artist who created all of this. And I think it'll lead you to ask that question, why? And find some answers that you maybe hadn't found before as we think about what's the purpose of all this? And ultimately, of course, the purpose is that it would glorify God, that creation would glorify God, that our lives lived in worship would glorify God. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen? Amen. Father God, we worship You as our Creator. We worship You as the God who in the beginning said, Let there be light, and there was light. God, many of us have heard these stories, read this passage many times, but we want to pray, Father, as we journey through this ancient text, that you would bring it alive to us as never before, that we would get a greater, fuller, richer, deeper, truer picture of who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit. For you created all things. They were created by you, Father. They were created through you, Jesus. They were created in your power, Holy Spirit, as you hovered over the waters and then brought life where there was no life. Father, we worship you as our creator. 
And we pray that in the midst of this world, this culture that has so abandoned the truth of your word, that you would bring us back to this fundamental ground, this fundamental pillar of our faith, that in the beginning you created the heavens and the earth. We thank you that you are before all things and you will remain after all things. You're the beginning and the end. You're the Alpha and the Omega. You're the God who was and is and is to come. We thank you for the certainty that gives our lives in the present. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that we can rely on you. Thank you that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.